Well, as some more folks get settled, um, just want to introduce myself. We've got a lot of uh, newer faces, a lot of which I have not had uh, the happy experience of meeting. Uh, my name is Elliot Shorey. I am a pastoral resident here, um, which is just another name for an intern, uh, and um, have been for a decent amount of time. Um, but it is it is my honor to be able to lead us as we continue our series this morning in Revelation, our series entitled The Lamb Who Conquers. Uh, we are going to be looking at chapter 12 this morning. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and open up to chapter 12 of the book of Revelation and this morning's message from God to us as we consider the woman, the dragon, and the dragon slayer. It's nice when a text just kind of serves up a sweet title like that. Uh, but before we dive in, I do want us to remind ourselves of kind of what the purpose of the book of Revelation is. Kind of pull back and remind ourselves of a few things. Sandwiching all of its content with all of its strange and sometimes mind-bending imagery are very similar words in Revelation 1 and Revelation 22. From its first chapter and its last, the book of Revelation holds out for us a promise and a purpose. Revelation 1.3 says, Happy is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and happy are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And Revelation 22, verse 7 says, And behold, look, I am coming soon. Happy is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And so we have this book-ended promise and purpose, which is to make you happy. From this understanding, we must enter into every text in between these bookends and ask and consider what sweet happiness God has for us. It is my prayer that we would leave happier than when we entered this morning. Happier because we have heard and by God's grace and power have kept and will keep its encouraging and challenging content. So do you want to be happy? Here's where you can find it. So an invitation into happiness must be our theme, even amidst the many hard and challenging words. Um, and that is another reality of the book of Revelation that I want us to be reminded of. From its outset, with its letters to the churches, we see promises and warnings commingled. We see in the very first letter to the church, churches, to Ephesus, in chapter 2 and verse 5, an example of this. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This group of, group of people who professed the name of Christ and as such were a local expression of the church, the lampstand, would have that removed from them if they did not repent. They would be treated as apostate Israel, as the ESV Bible puts it. They would have blessings replaced by curses. 
and you do not want to be under the curse of God. And yet, from the same letter to Ephesus, it reads this, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the garden, the paradise of God. For those who conquer and patiently endure trials and resist the kingdom of darkness and its influences, there is this promise, promise of happiness and sober warnings. And nearly every chapter in the book contains both this promise and both these warnings in one way or the other. And we must learn to hear uh, both its sober warnings as an invitation into the abundant, happy life that is in Jesus. And we must learn to see with God's perspective that everything that is from the dragon's influence that we'll hear of this morning is a deceptive tool to lure and seduce us into the dungeon despair, as John Bunyan pictured it. And so uh, lastly, in regards to introduction and reminder, we must remember also that the name of the book of Revelation is Revelation. It is a revealing. Uh, if we said, I had a revelation the other day, what we're saying is that what was previously cloudy or confusing is now clear. And so if our method of interpretation makes us feel like we need a PhD, then something is amiss. The book of Revelation was written to first century believers who were expected to be able to just understand it, both the literate and the illiterate alike. These things do not need to feel out of our depth. You do not need a PhD. Uh, and so we should consider how the first recipients would have heard it and received it and obtained the happy promises from it. Uh, where they had cloudiness and difficulty figuring out why the world continues to be such a place of suffering. Do you some, sometimes wonder that? This book comes to them and to us with the kindness of clarity that reveals the beautiful plans of God with an invitation into happiness. So let's pray and ask God's, God for help. Oh, Father and Lord and Savior, Jesus, may your people here experience their cup running over with happiness because we are in you and you in us. May we reject the lies and seductions of the dragon that seek to ensnare and then accuse us. Thank you that we no longer have to sit as guilty defendants listening to the accusations of the prosecutor, but rather because we are in Christ, he is the defendant and we stand in him and he and we receive the verdict of not guilty, forever righteous. May our hearts erupt with unspeakable joy that the devil has been thrown down and we are free and preserved until we see you in whom is the fullness of life. 
Lead us not into temptation, O God. Deliver us from evil. For that ancient serpent is furious with us and wants to devour. Protect us, O God. And may it be your voice that speaks today. Make us more like Jesus. So now, I also meant to say, if you want a great book on Revelation, just a really accessible, easy read, pick up Nancy Guthrie's book, uh, Blessed. Um, What a gift this book is. Um, So not too big, super helpful, super practical, and oh so encouraging. So now let us read Revelation 12. Let us give reverence and respect and attention to the inerrant, flawless, life-giving words of God. Revelation chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished, for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the, dra- gra- that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God, And hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. 
we have this vision of a pregnant woman, a beautiful woman, a glorious woman, shining with the light of the sun, moonlight coming from under her feet, and she wears the beauty of the stars as a crown. And she's pregnant. Who is this woman? Well, we should hear something familiar in this description. We have been hearing through our series about how the Old Testament is the key to the book of Revelation. It's what the original audience would have been extremely familiar with, so familiar that a primary method of teaching in that day was for a teacher to be able to stand up and say one phrase from an Old Testament text, and his audience would immediately know of what text they were referring and be able to employ the entire context of that text to what they were now hearing from the teacher. So one point of quick application for us this morning. Do you want the full blessing promised in the book of Revelation? Then do not neglect the Old Testament. Do not neglect the prophets of the Old Testament, or the Old Testament at large. Go deep. Search the scriptures daily. Get into your Old Testaments more. Do you do it already? Do it more. There are glorious depths to be explored. There is a full measure of happiness to be experienced as we see them all fulfilled in Jesus. So what from the Old Testament helps us determine the meaning of the picture here? Who is this woman? Remember, it's not convoluted or confusing. We don't need a PhD. If we hear with Old Testament ears, we will hear of Joseph's dream in Genesis 37, in which was a vision of sun and moon and stars bowing before Joseph. It was the patriarchs and matriarch of Israel as representative of God's people in the Old Covenant. This woman, while pregnant with anticipation and in the agony of waiting for hopes fulfilled, is all of God's people before the Messiah waiting for his coming. The waiting of pregnancy is a, is a hope-filled one with a life, a baby in the future. But it's also an agonizing one, for that life comes through the crying out of birth pains. And especially in former days, when infant mortality uh, and mother fatalities were much more frequent before modern medicine, it was a scary waiting of childbirth. Um, average life expectancy, I don't know if you know this or not, but average life expectancy now is about 76 years old. Uh, but in the year 1900, average life expectancy was about 47. And they say that the largest impact on the average, uh, on the overall average, is a massive decline in infant mortality and childbirth deaths. Childbirth was agonizing and scary. Would mother and child even survive? The people of God have always been waiting with hope for a new life, as even as they suffer. Their suffering, though, has always been a productive one. 
Not a meaningless suffering. It's leading to something. It's doing something. It's leading to a new life. Are you in the midst of physical pain through which you are suffering and waiting for the fullness of the promise of healing? Are you in the middle of relational strain? One of your teenage or grown children doesn't want anything to do with you. And you're waiting for the restoration. Have you experienced slander or distrust and you're waiting for justice or vindication? Have you experienced abandonment? Have you experienced barrenness? Have you experienced the dark thoughts of acute depression? Have you experienced abuse or neglect? Have you experienced the humiliation of material need and lack of provision? Take heart. Waiting with hope while suffering has always been one of the characteristics of God's people. It's not new to you, and it's not meaningless. It's working an eternal weight of glory, Romans 8 tells us. A glory of reward, of crowns, of the ability to eat of the tree of life. Ever since the fall and its effects of child, painful childbirth in Genesis 3, goodness and life have come through suffering. And we're going to see that it is that exact pattern, goodness coming through suffering, that the hope, the Messiah himself, came through. This pregnant woman, ancient Israel, is waiting for her child who will rule all nations with a rod of iron. Verse 5. This woman, pregnant with hope for her Savior as she suffers, is what Jesus shows John here to be, to be the characteristic of his people. And what he finds so beautiful about her. He finds her and displays her as stunningly beautiful. And so he finds us. Another side note of application here. For all the church's flaws, beware how you speak of Christians in the church. Even when you rightly desire that they be more faithful, like their Savior, when God declares his people as his beautiful bride, don't think it a small thing to point out and complain about all her warts. Uh, the place of God's people gathered is the most beautiful place on earth, not because of beauty we possess in and of ourselves, but because of the hope we have in the one who is the perfection of beauty and in whom we now live. We are the place of his dwelling, and so we are beautiful. He delights in us. He delights in you. So back to Revelation. This pregnant woman is anxious for the promised Messiah. Back in Genesis 3.15, going all the way back to the beginning, right after Adam and Eve ate the fruit that the serpent offered to them, we read that there will be enmity between the woman's seed and between the serpent. But the serpent's head will be crushed by the woman's offspring, despite the child temporarily getting his heel bruised by the serpent. 
There is an immediate anticipation at the outset from the fall that must have been in Eve's mind and heart as she gave birth to her first sons and wondered which of her sons was going to do the serpent crushing. And so we see a dragon enter the scene of this vision. Verse 3, a great red dragon. And who is this dragon? The text does not leave it a mystery. Verse 9 tells us plainly, the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That serpent, the deceiver that came to Adam and Eve and whispered half-truths of deception and caused their fall and because of which received God's curse that his head would be crushed by the woman's offspring, he has been anxiously waiting and trying to devour the Messiah when the woman would give birth. It is this reason that Satan influenced Cain to kill Abel. Those first seeds of the woman, that the woman must have been wondering, who's going to do the serpent crushing? Well, one of them is used by Satan to crush his brother. How confusing that must have been for Adam and Eve who were expecting a serpent crusher. It's why the influence of Satan has been in the world to kill all the male children of the Hebrews in, in Egypt back in Exodus. And it's why the influence of Satan in his world was at work in Herod in the ordering of killing the Jewish babies when Herod heard of a newborn king of the Jews. You see, look at verse 3. A great red dragon with seven heads, picturing incredible intelligence, and ten horns, picturing great power, and on his heads, seven diadems, picturing complete rule over this earth. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. And all the kingdoms of the world are his territory, Matthew 4. And he wields his influence through politicians and political par parties and worldly governmental systems, all pictured in Revelation as Babylon the Great, Revelation 18. So another quick note of application. Place no disproportionate hope in any political party. Not that every individual politician is of Satan, but the worldly governing systems have always been a primary tool in Satan's hand. And that includes our own. This serpent, this great red dragon was waiting for the woman to give birth. I picture him in, in my mind killing the mid midwife as the moment the child crowns. The baby becomes visible. Uh, the, the, and while he's standing there, he kills the midwife and he's waiting to catch the newborn baby, licking his lips and salivating, standing ready to swallow it whole. Satan, the dragon, knows his end is coming through the woman's seed and he's ravenously angry and wants to kill the child before the child can crush his head. He wants to maintain his influence over this world. He does not want to relinquish it to him who will rule with a rod of iron. It's what causes him to enter Judas, to influence the Jewish leaders, to pressure Pilate, and ultimately to kill Jesus, the Messiah, the woman's child. And just as you think that the serpent is the one doing the crushing of a head, 
Jesus, the dragon slayer, rises victoriously from the dead, showing that even death, even death is nothing more than a bruised heel to him who is the author of life. Death is nothing more than a bruised heel to him. And this text sums up all of this with the simple words in verse 5, her child was caught up to God. Victorious, killed yet alive, risen and reigning. The dragon slayer has crushed the serpent, the great red dragon's head, And what has been accomplished in this victory? In verse 8 and 9, we have a pulling back in the sequence and taking up a more detailed look at Satan's defeat. It says, he, the dragon, was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Verse 10, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. No longer able to accuse God's people. And what an unbelievable reality this is. For what has been the serpent's methods from the very beginning? Whispering half-truths with promises of fullness of life and joy. Did God really say? And then whispering accusations of what a terrible person you are. And how dare you come into the presence of God. He tells Adam and Eve that the fruit will make them wise. And it did make them aware of realities they were previously unaware of. It was a half-truth. But then it made them aware of shame, shame of their nakedness before God. And they were filled with attempts to make themselves presentable as they sewed fig leaves together for clothes. You know something of this, do you not? Oh, when you commit to control your angry words... But then irritants come and the temptation whispers that you will feel better if you just unleash what you're feeling. And then angry words towards your kids or your spouse or the obnoxious driver flood from your mouth. And then what does Satan do to the children of God? Just after his words of temptation, then he whispers, how dare you? You better not respond to God's call. You better not ask for God's blessing. You can't be in relationship with your father and maker. How dare you pray? You better clean yourself up first. You better make yourself some clothes. You're naked and exposed. Such has been the dragon's methods from the beginning. And to be honest, his half-truths are, well... Half true. 
In our sin, we are unpresentable to God. We are naked and exposed. We are dead in our sins. But the Christ who was caught up to God and to His throne, His judgment seat, has conquered Satan and His influence over the people of God. The throne room that the child was caught up to in verse 5 was also the judgment seat, the place where a king would issue his verdicts and his judgments. And it is from this place that the dragon has been thrown down. Satan, who deceives people into thinking his ways will be satisfying, but then sickly delights to see them never satiated, never at peace. His accusing voice is gone. Oh, brothers and sisters, friends, you no longer belong to the kingdom of darkness, are no longer Satan's subjects, and you have been transferred into the kingdom of light and life. Satan no longer has any claim on you. There is no more fire-spitting, prosecuting attorney that is allowed to even submit an accusation against you. The accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. No longer a place for him within the courts of God. And so when you see your sin more than you see your Savior's victory, declare to your heart what is true. That you are clothed in God's presence, not with clothing you have made yourself like those fig leaves, but with the righteous robes of Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain, so that you might be clothed in his skins, even as God reclothed Adam and Eve. This defeat has Satan the dragon angry. Verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Unable to touch the victor, the dragon slayer, he now turns his attention to his bride, the church. Angry and furious, he wants to let out his wrath. Though he is ultimately a defeated foe, despite the death blow he has received, his life has not yet expired. And in his anger, he is lashing out every which way. And the object of his fury or all of those that belong to the people of God, the rest of the woman's offspring, us, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus and keep his commandments. We are the object of his wrath, and his methods are unchanged. He attacks through the words of his mouth. As Revelation has on, as, as one of its central themes, the, the Satan's attacks come to our hearts, through three primary methods, through seduction, through false teaching, and through persecuting false testimony. Christopher will touch on all of these more next week, but we need to see this morning that we are living in a wilderness. As Peter puts it, we are strangers and exiles, sojourners. In verse 6, it tells us that after the child's victory, she, the people of God, fled into the wilderness. 
The wilderness here is a reference back to the book of Numbers. Old Testament lens again. Where have we heard wilderness before? It is a reference back to the book of Numbers when the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The wilderness is an in-between place. It is a place of both deliverance. They were saved from Egypt, that ancient expression of Babylon, Satan's servant, and a place of suffering while they waited for the promised land all the while being sustained by the bread of life, the manna. You see, the days of our suffering are numbered. And God is preserving us and keeping us and nourishing us as we travel. We have been delivered from Satan and are heading to the promised land of heaven and the new earth in the presence of God. And the days in this wilderness that we are traversing have a fixed end, 1,260 days. You see, if seven is perfect fullness, then seven years is the complete fullness of time. And half of that is three and a, three and a half years, or 1,200 and 60 days. Our experience in this wilderness is just a season. When the fullness of time is complete, there will be deliverance in an ultimate way, a complete wholeness, an experience of victory over Satan and his influence. Friends, be faithful, hold fast, conquer, and Jesus will grant you to eat of the tree of life. He'll give you a crown, chapter 2 and verse 10. He'll give you an invitation into his banquet, chapter 2 and verse 17. He'll cause you to rule as royalty with him, chapter 2 and verse 26. He'll grant that you be forever sinless, chapter 3 and verse 5. He'll grant that you are an integral part of the place that is called the perfection of beauty, the new Jerusalem, chapter 3 and verse 12, and that you will actually sit with him on his throne. Chapter 3 and verse 21. My friends, be faithful, hold fast, conquer. This wilderness that we're in has a fixed end. And we're heading to the promised land. What wilderness are you in? What sorrows are you enduring? Though it feel like it lasts forever and... Half of the fullness of time can feel like forever. It is numbered. And God is using it to conquer Satan. God is using your suffering to conquer Satan. Look at verse 10 and 11. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. They have conquered him. How do we conquer Satan? By following the way of Jesus, who emptied himself, who took the form of a servant, who suffered even unto death. It was the suffering of Jesus, our commander, that led to the, 
to the conquering, to the ultimate conquering of Satan. And guys, a servant is not greater than his master. If our Lord suffered, we are called to suffer as well. Suffer even unto death. And through our suffering, we will have a hand in conquering Satan. This is at least part of why God does not just immediately take us out of the earth and take us to heaven when we are saved. He's got a conquering work to do through us. That's, and we conquer not through displays of force or bravado. That's the way of our world and its leaders. But rather, we conquer through how we suffer quietly, peaceably, joyfully. Even as the Lamb of God that went silently and willingly by His choice to the slaughter, so we too should pursue conquering through peaceably, meekly, and gently enduring our suffering. It is a controlled strength that willingly lays aside things we feel entitled to for the good of others and the advancement of God's kingdom. This is a seeking to have the heart of Christ that, that, that asks for deliverance from the painful experience, from the suffering, but ultimately says, but not my will, but yours be done. Whatever conquers Satan does the most good for God's people and brings God the most honor. This is what a watching world will say. What is different about these people? And it will give honor to Jesus, who is the one who suffered it all for us. So how does this conquer Satan? Satan's tactics have always been through deception and self-exaltation. Verse 9 calls him the deceiver. Just as he whispered deceptive words to Adam and Eve, Verse 15 says that he pours water like a river out of his mouth to sweep her away. See, we live in a culture that craves comfort and pleasure in this world, in Satan's earth. That is Satan's seductive influence. He whispers, take hold of what is rightfully yours. Don't let anyone hold you back. You deserve it. Pursue that forever house in this world instead of that far-off promise of a forever home with God. Follow your heart and your desires. Did God really say that you can't have that thing that looks so desirable? He must not really have your best interests and joy at heart. He's not delivering you from your pain. He can't really want your good. Why would you sacrifice your standard of living to help others that clearly haven't worked as hard as you? You could give to the point that you feel like you've done something good and feel good about yourself. But why would you give to the detriment of yourself? They should pull themselves up by their own bootstraps like you did. Why would you sacrifice fancy vacations for the sake of giving to the church and his mission? Why would you choose hunger so that others can eat? 
Are you in relational pain? Cut them off. You and your mental health are what is supremely important. Are you in physical pain? Obsess about it. Dwell on how it affects everything. God must not love you to give you that cross to bear. And such go on and on the whispers of Satan. These are the seductive whispers we hear. We constantly in our culture move on to bigger and better in our standards of living instead of living radically for the kingdom of heaven. We obsess about our health and our comfort as if all the abundance of life hasn't been offered us in the life to come and is worth living without now. Satan wants us living for now and living for self. He wants us pursuing the forever home here. We blend into the world when we do. But when we empty ourselves of all our rights and choose suffering instead of comfort, as our Savior did, when we sing with joy even when we hurt, when we pray for those that slander us, when we choose poverty, when we choose poverty for the sake of seeing others elevated, when we choose unacknowledged and unseen service instead of pursuing position that props up ego, when we choose quiet, faithful service to our families instead of public displays of giftedness, when we raise special needs children with patience, and care and adopt in a needy child instead of moving on to more comfortable stages of life. When we take lower-paying jobs for the good of our family's emotional, relational, and spiritual health. When we give ourselves to the service of a sick, loved, and dying loved one instead of focusing on my needs. When we live on mission to Africa or Haiti or Thailand, when we use our homes as a way to host others, when we give of our time in order to see the church's mission advanced, when we pour quietly into people that can't give back to us, when we serve the church, church's mission, and, and we do things like unseen, like cutting grass, when we care for the poor, not with sounding a trumpet first for the praise of men, but quietly for the audience of one. And when we seek to raise children by faithfully pointing them to Jesus, even when you have to do it alone, we are conquering Satan's tactics and displaying to the world that there is an altogether better fulfillment of our longings. And that fulfillment is Jesus. Jesus is better. Jesus and his renown, his reputation is far better and more important than mine. And church, these are the ways that you are conquering Satan. All those things that I just said are the things that I know there are people in this body doing. So press on. Keep going. It quietly displays to the world that you are not living for their approval or your ego or your comfort in this world, but rather you are storing up for yourself treasure in heaven, even if it means going without in this short, time-bound three and a half years of wilderness. You're living for the seven years of fullness, the eternal presence in the presence of God the everlasting joy, 
These are the culture-refuting things that you all are doing. And it is conquering Satan's influence even as you take up your cross daily, die daily to your desires, and live for Jesus. I've been greatly encouraged this week by seeing these ways that you all are modeling these things. Keep going, endure, conquer, continue to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus in the path, in the path of death that leads to ultimately abundant life. You're doing well. Don't stop. You are loving not your lives even unto death. Satan's temptations are real, though. His seductions are often subtle, and they are a very real threat. Look at verse 4. The dragon's tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. We have said that the stars represent God's people. This is why from the opening letters to the churches, there are promises, like we said at the beginning, there are promises to those that conquer and warnings to those that give in to Satan's seductions. Many are those who have temporarily identified themselves with the people of God that ultimately will be shown to have never been his at all. They are living for themselves, even as they're putting on religious airs. Jesus said, many are those that will say, did I not do this? Did I not do that? And the Father will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. There are some here right now that are in this category. Beware of his seductive influence. Beware of sliding slowly into living for this life instead of the next. It's so easy. Beware of blending into the culture around us. Beware of the Southern culture in which it is so easy to be Christian but to have no true love of Jesus and a life lived in joyful suffering for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Are you really his? Examine yourself to see whether you are really in the faith. Jesus said that the cares of this life choke out many that had seeds of faith seemed to spring up. And such is the primary danger we as Americans face. Surrounded by comforts and possessions, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. Thanks be to God that with him all things are possible. But let us be sobered by the warnings. In my own sufferings through the years, I have liked to consider what Satan would want from me. Um, he'd want me to get self-focused, to care so much about my pain that I don't see others' pain. He'd want me to obsess about it and grow anxious about it, that my joy would be robbed from me. Um, and by considering what Satan would want from me, it helps me think through what conquering him looks like in that situation. And I've really liked dreaming about kicking him in the teeth. Not giving in. Choosing joy. 
choosing to be others-focused. I hate Satan so much that I really like the thought of my part in kicking him in the teeth, of conquering him. Even as I know that the dragon slayer Jesus has not just kicked him in the teeth, but he has placed his head under his foot and crushed it. And so we come to close. Um, I think there are uh, three questions uh, that would be helpful for us to reflect upon. These will be on the screen. Are you feeling accused by your own conscience and Satan's whispers because of your repeated failures? My encouragement for you is this. There is victory and freedom in Jesus. The accuser has been thrown down. If you are in Christ, then you are forever in the right with him. Secondly, are you suffering and struggling for joy? Are you in a dungeon of despair, of despondency? My encouragement is know that you are joining Jesus in his victory and conquering Satan through suffering. Let it inspire you to press on with joy and hope as you live for God and the good of others instead of your comfort. You will eat of the tree of life if you do. Know that your suffering is time-bound, and the fullness of time is coming when God will put all your suffering away. And then thirdly, are you compromised in living for this world, caring more for the comforts of this world than storing up treasures in heaven? As you evaluate your life, is there no real observable difference between you and your neighbors in terms of your priorities? how you spend your money and your time. Turn and repent now and God will grant you to enter his banquet and live in the fullness of joy forever if you overcome until the end. So let's take a moment, a minute to just quietly reflect on this. And then we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna sing God Undefeatable, the dragon slayer, has purchased and won our victory.